Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello, listener. I hope that you are well. Uh, I will start by apologizing very profusely to you for abandoning you for so long. Oh my goodness, it has been a long time since the last podcast recording and I am not happy about that myself. But July has been a long month and it has been really difficult to find time and space to get some recordings done. But I promise that I will make up for this in the next month and I really thank you for still being here and uh, following and supporting the podcast. So um, without taking too much time, I will introduce this week's podcast episode, which is a part two of a conversation. Uh, We started in April with Chennai Chair of uh, Mozilla and um, we were talking about all things AI and um, Uh, At the part that we ended off at, we were starting to talk a little bit about data colonization and um, getting into data feminism and conversations about that. So this will be the next part of this podcast or this um, uh, series. Well, it's a a two-part series. So this will be the last part of that series. And I hope that you will enjoy it. I won't go into too much detail about what's going on in the digital world, except to say I'm sure if you follow or are on Twitter, you know that Twitter has rebranded itself and it's interesting times, as it has been all of this year since um, Elon Musk's uh, takeover of the platform. I think (laughs) changing the logo in that way might be for many people uh, a little bit of a final straw in that, you know, we are really at the behest of whatever... um, Mr. Musk feels like doing at this point in time with this platform that many of us have a lot of great fondness for. In fact, there is one episode earlier in the year where I gave a little bit of trivia about the Twitter bird and where it comes from while that trivia no longer applies because the Twitter bird is no more. Um, You might have joined threads by this time. Um, If you have any thoughts about how that's going, please do share. You can tweet us at Native Podcast uh, or else send an email at info at digitally native podcast or send um, a response or any kind of feedback on our Facebook page, the Digitally Native Podcast with Fungai Machirori, which is also the same page on LinkedIn, the Digitally Native Podcast with Fungai Machirori. All right, I will not take more time. Let's get right into it. Oh, one final thing. We also have a newsletter that you can subscribe for. Uh, We're sending our second um, edition of the newsletter uh, later today. So you might just have missed um, that little window. But if you want to join uh, our mailing list, you can receive the August uh, newsletter, which sends at the end of August. Just visit our website, www.digitallynativepodcast.com. And look for the subscribe button and add yourself over there. Uh, It'll just ask you for a few basic details, including your email address. And then you will be on our mailing list and you will get the next newsletter. All right. That's it for me for today. Please do enjoy this episode. And maybe now I can just zone in a little bit more 
and ask you about data feminism itself and what that is and what that looks like. All right. Um, so data feminism, I think, has been a term particularly popularized and coined by uh, Lorraine Pine and Catherine D'Ignazio through their book actually also titled Data Feminism. So the idea around that is actually then having a framework for thinking about data science. Um, so data science, like all of those, that, that school of thought around data mm -hmm. and the ethics um, around it, which for from a data feminism perspective is guided by intersectional feminism. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, data can make our lives better. But how do we then, you know, go through this data, do the analytics, report back on it in a way that is actually self-aware of who is doing it and who's part of the process, um, mm -hmm. you know, takes into account the risks involved of collecting that data or analyzing that data that belongs to a particular set of people. Um, and also in a way that takes into account like power. Because at the end right. of the day, the person who's who, with the ability to do the analysis and collect the data and holds the data has the power versus the person who's like, you know, producing the information and getting it out there or the different spaces where the information comes from. Right. So that is really is then taking on that like intersectional approach um, to, to, to the issues that exist in data. And can you explain what you mean by intersectional feminism, just for anyone who might not understand what that means? Sure. So intersectional feminism was a term coined by Kimbell Crenshaw, um, a theory, where basically Kimbell was looking at how people were experiencing the legal system, um, women in particular, but thinking of how different our different identities and other points in which we interact with actually um, add a layer to how we experience injustice. So I think this is why I actually started by saying I'm a black feminist woman in tech. Mm -hmm. It's because yeah. when I interact with the technological space, my identity is in terms of race determines mm -hmm. how people interact with me. And mm -hmm. like some of the opportunities or challenges that come are layered by that. Then in addition to that, being a woman as well creates that additional layer of injustice where mm -hmm. then, okay, you identify as black and as a woman you might be treated more differently than a white woman or, or an, a woman of Indian um, or an Indian woman. And then in mm -hmm. addition to that, um, how you can also, like your economic background, your educational background, actually also furthers that area of injustice. And so mm -hmm. I think I like um, also how Sylvia Tamale talks about uh, intersectional feminism by taking into account like our colonial history um, mm -hmm. into that as well to then say, because we've been, you know, you, you're part of a colonized nation or a continent, your experience of injustice is also layered into that. Mm -hmm. um, and then Patricia Hill Collins talk, talks about like domains of, um, domains of power. And I think mm -hmm. what's interesting for me is how sometimes, you know, the oppressed can be the oppressor as well. Mm -hmm. So really mm -hmm. thinking about like that, that intersectional, those intersectional underlying issues of um, injustice and then how it's important to assess society from that perspective so that we don't have a one size fits all solution to then say, mm -hmm. okay, all the black women are suffering. So let's just give mm -hmm. them, you know, like this kind of system to make their life better. Mm -hmm. And that's so interesting. I mean, even the, what you've just mentioned about um, colonization having an impact, and there's a whole conversation as well about data colonization, 
um, and, and how there's this new colonization that's happening as a result of data. Do you have any um, thoughts or perspectives on that as well? Yeah, so I think one of the things that's emerging around the conversation around data co colonization is generally how, you know, companies are moving to places with that colonial history mm. or interacting with people with that colonial history and extracting mm. information. And mm. then, so it's kind of like the movement of data from like you're, you're the, the raw data producer and then mm -hmm. they go and then they do things to it and then they come back and place their algorithms and whatnot have, uh, have you mm. on, on that continent. Um, and I think when, when I think about data colonialism, it's also quite interesting how people ref think about it, say, for example, of um, surveillance cameras being developed mm. in China and then being deployed in African countries, collecting black faces so that they can improve mm -hmm. their systems to sell um, in European markets. But there's mm -hmm. no benefit back to those. Um, well, the benefit is, is increased surveillance, mm -hmm. but they're being mm -hmm. sold in, in, in like, you know, authoritarian regions or highly surveilled regions with the surveillance doesn't mean safety. It actually means giving people more harm. Mm -hmm. um, so really there's um, work that's being done around digital extra, extra uh, digital extraction. So mm -hmm. like how you can, you find that like in core areas like refugee camps or slums, that's where the data set cleaning happens. Mm. Um, and they are paid the lowest and then it's outsourced. I think yeah. there's currently a case right now with a Kenyan in Kenya about um, someone challenging Meta's, Meta's basically said we're not part of the system because they outsource it, but they're actually challenging the work conditions and in, in that space. Mm. Mm. That's so interesting. And I think anyone who's listening is also finding this interesting. And then the next question would be, okay, if we're talking about feminism and I think, you know, the digital space has provided so much, um, so many outlets for new expressions and organizing that's um, feminist oriented. But a lot of people still struggle with thinking about how their feminism exists digitally. So, I mean, we there's an area of digital feminism anyway. How then, this is another layer. Now we're talking data feminism. I mean, they sit in the same world. I mean, you can be a feminist and go and start a Twitter account and talk about feminist issues. And that's probably considered more digital feminism. But then how then does that link with data feminism? Just using that example, if I'm somebody and I'm like, hey, you know what? I have things I wanna talk about. I want a community. I'm gonna set up a Twitter account. I'm gonna create hashtag. We, we meet every now and again, and we discuss under this hashtag. That person might say, okay, I'm, I'm a digital feminist. How then do they add the layer of then saying, but I'm also, a, I'm into data feminism or I'm, I'm incorporating that into what I'm doing. So I think that the layer it can be added by thinking about like, as you interact in these platforms and provide those large, you're providing, you're a source of information, you're a source of data. That mm -hmm. hashtag, when it collects who participates in it, the conversations that happen under it, uh, the, the, sorry, the issues that emerge under it. That's a data point that can feed into like data work, right? Like, so when mm -hmm. Twitter decides to assess the extent to which an algorithm that's meant to um, moderate on a particular issue is behaving, your hashtag can provide on that. Mm -hmm. So I think the thing is um, a need to highlight the points of connection. So mm -hmm. because you're on this space, you have to just determine that anything that happens, this doesn't happen because someone is sitting in an office and they go like, oh, we're going to shut down that account. 
things are happening because of the way in which the data is structured and the platform is structured. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, you know, um, data feminism provides like these uh, principles in the way that people can take a look at these things. Um, so it's really how then do, as a digital feminist, how do you participate in the production of data? And at right. the same time, how do you participate in like maybe developing with other people analysis of data that's already out there? So thinking about sentiment analysis when you're on these platforms, you know, like generally what's the sentiment when you have your particular hashtag as it goes out? Mm-hmm. And then really it's it's about like that, um, you know, also rethinking the binaries. At the end of the day, when you're a feminist online, you can actually, you're able to tell from the other side who's more likely to be, uplifted on the platform than not so you you really have to then take into account from like a, like also a non-binary perspective so that it's not just like a focus on women but also a focus on like um you know like people who are part of the lgbtqia community so that it's you're able to assess these things mm-hmm. so how and does I think, oh sorry so, yeah. yeah i, I think this on. one more is is also really being able to consider context right so mm-hmm. like if you are a digital feminist you also are existing in this space as much as you're connecting to a lot of other people there's still a context that you exist in and that can also influence in the way in which data can be understood so mm-hmm. for me it's it's you know being able to find those points of connections and recognizing that it requires for us then to work with different people with different skill sets so that Mm -hmm. we're able to then connect feminist issues to data to the digital space as well. Okay. All right. And so how then does um, this, this person, like, you know, I, I become aware that I am a data set as well. Like my content, my hashtag is a data set. Um, and the people that I'm bringing into my space to discuss these things that may be of a sensitive nature that may flag something in the system, you know, how how then does one practically harness that to to make some sort of change and incorporate that into their practice? How 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 do you imagine how do you imagine somebody doing that? So I think it's a two-way street. It's a two-way mm-hmm. street from people who've always been like digital rights activists to mm-hmm. connect the issues and then to highlight at which point like data has an impact and work mm-hmm. collaboratively in an ecosystem. So mm-hmm. one of the solutions that I put out in terms of um, how feminists can build resistance to, to data practices is maybe having an African feminist data manifesto which would allow different feminists to be able to have the language and the resources to draw on. To actually say, as us centering African feminists, this data, this data practice at play is problematic, right? Mm-hmm. And then also engaging in policy spaces. So oftentimes, you know, there are new policy amendments that come in. I know, you know, there's always a policy amendment happening in the African Union. The Malaba Convention, which is meant to be like the original, our original body for the original mm. law that we have for data protection hasn't come through yet. I think mm-hmm. it would be interesting for, you know, to have that as a space of advocacy for engagement to actually assess why haven't these countries, the countries that haven't signed, signed yet. And also mm-hmm. to be able to assess the laws in place to, to think about how responsive are they to gender issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I think so, so the digital rights community in that way, drawing in like uh, feminists who've always been working on social justice issues. And I think also um, 
from, you know, drawing from that example, it's really trying to, to participate in spaces and ask questions and, and figure out collectively, how do we work together? I think mm-hmm. in the Afrofeminist Data Futures project that we were working on, it was quite interesting how people who collect data were talking about like gatekeepers to the analysis and also just generally struggling to find a like when they had a, a techie was usually a guy who was usually who usually would hold all the passwords to the website and then they would just log in and if this person decided to hold them ransom they could hold them ransom mm-hmm. i think there's there's a need for feminists who are in the technical field mm-hmm. to actually put in a little bit more work in helping to be more visible so that fem- other feminists can actually draw their expertise onto this onto this space um create those cross background collaborations because I I mean I'm very resistant to say that that example that we have that person must now go and learn what data feminism and then they become a champion all the time but I do think that it's a collaborative effort that needs to be done and also just show how issues of violence are connected to data issues Mm -hmm. of like you know health health are connected to data issues Mm -hmm. of like security are connected to data but then when we have that cross bridge we're able to then say so in your capacity, what what at what level do we need to set up an intervention? Mm. And and then what, how do we then connect this to? We're ultimately the goal is social change, right? Um, and so if we are talking about the the linkages between violence um, and data and things that we can actually track and figure out certain patterns or trends or issues, ultimately the people that we invest. Um, a lot of the power to to effect some sort of social change are service providers, you know, police, um, people at rape clinics, things like that. Um, how then does that nexus connect? How is everyone in the space then connected? Because, you know, we can have this conversation and say, make people aware of certain things or, you know, that sort of thing. But if service providers are not um, in the loop, then you're going to go in there and say, I have this informational evidence of something. And they might say, well, this is not something we regard as evidence of anything. So how do you create this ecosystem that's actually effective in all its in, in all its areas and facets? Yeah, that's a billion dollar question, Fungai. Like if, <laughs> that's like, that's, if you knew that answer, you'd stop working today. You'd be like, okay. I'm working. I'm mm-hmm. working. We're done. But, but yeah. So just to share some insights, I think any social change is a long journey and requires having very different key stakeholders in the rooms and champions. When mm-hmm. I think about how um, online gender-based violence started as a topic, a lot of people were like, it's not violence if no one is bleeding. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but the work that had to be done was actually pushing it to be recognized in law and and, and at international um, legislation that maybe countries had already signed to. Mm-hmm. And in that way, what then started happening was getting funding and recognition for, you know, service providers such as uh, the law enforcement or uh, rape clinics or Article 9 chapters, you know, those, those independent mm-hmm. bodies to actually get resourced to understand what the issue was, mm-hmm. right? And I think the biggest challenge is always in, in, in shifting this conversation, the resources that are needed so that people actually can get trained to understand mm. how to respond mm-hmm. because you're right if you go to a, a, a police officer and say this person has been harassing me look at all the internet chats that they've sent me they might be like oh okay mm-hmm. i don't know what to do 
Um, and yet it might require like an ISP intervention, but for you to get the internet service provider to intervene, you need to get a court a police yeah. report and then you need to get a court clearance and then, you know. So the really the processes and the systems that we currently have are the things that need to be addressed. And I look at South Africa as an example. I think it's, it's um, so share, for example, sharing um, of nudes or so what's called as non-consensual intimate, intimate image sharing, which we've been trying to move away from calling it revenge porn. Um, there's a high fine for it, and it's covered in the Film and Publication Board as well mm. as in um, Cyber Crime Bill, I think. So in that instance, it's kind of like we have to look at the structures that are in place to see the kind of work that's needed for these structures to actually be more responsive. But that's at like a structural level, and that's always a long journey. What I do think is very necessary and what I've seen being done is for us to create like those kinds of resources at an individual level and community level that can be used. I think about the Safer Sisters Guide. Um, I think about the Access Now hotline for human rights defenders, which you can actually make use of if you're experiencing harm online um, in order for you to, to, to figure out the kind of tools and resources that are needed. Yeah, but at the end of the day, in terms of like structural change that's needed, yeah. We are getting somewhere. We are not where we started off. When I started 10 years ago, it's not exactly where we are. So I do think that a lot of the times is thinking about and think about solutions at a community level, thinking mm -hmm. about solutions at a structural level, and then like at an individual level, what is it that we can do? Mm -hmm. And just going back to this kind of these divisions that tend to happen, maybe they're not divisions, but then spaces that naturally sort of are kept or keep themselves separate. Um, we see it anyway in the whole world of digital, digital humanities, let's call it that, where there is one side and data science is always somehow seen as a, a lot more valuable. Um, people more invested in the social aspects of technology who are like using the technology for social organizing and you know, trying to make it more of a social issue have their own spaces and the two spaces hardly ever come together they you know data can be very intimidating it's quantitative it's data sets it's these big things that some people are like this is too much i can't can't make sense of and then the social aspects are sort of well they're not quite as important because data is king or queen and so you see these things happening where these two camps are set up and there's hardly ever any kind of crossing over. And I, I assume this would also naturally tend to happen with data feminism and digital feminism, where people are like, I look at, you know, I'm taking what's happening offline in the non-digital world and I'm bringing it online. And you are looking at data sets, so I don't understand what you're doing. How, how do we begin at least to try to bridge those gaps? And, you know, bring this one family into one space and say, well, we all, we each have something to offer each other. So I think, maybe just to <clears throat> clarify my understanding within data feminism. So data feminism, um, I think by adding feminism to that aspect, it is meant to interact with, with digital feminists. Mm -hmm. It is all the basis of the things that it puts out all like the understanding of issues is on that you know tangent of like asking the questions of who's at the table asking the questions of how the information is pro processed asking the questions of how the information is developed so 
in that instance, um, to be quite honest, because it's it's such a new growing field itself, there's a lot more work and documentation that needs to be done in terms of how um, people who work in the data feminism space actually then interact with like the digital transformation, um, digital feminist space. And also, um, okay, cause, of course, because your listeners can't see this, but I'm smiling because I realized that the way in which um, feminism has now been interacting with like data, with the digital space, digital rights, uh, with uh, with like privacy and artificial intelligence has really been like people pushing and asking questions. And there's more so kind of work that's needed to build up that community and that body of work, particularly from by feminists from the global majority, global South or feminists who are not in Europe and America. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that is like an intentional area of work that's needed by funders to actually mm-hmm ask the questions of how do we have interdisciplinary programs in place so that um, you've got people being able to connect together and are supported to do the work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I've mentioned this a lot on this call, thinking about online gender-based violence, but I remember when there was um, a call in South Africa for the amendment of the domestic violence bill. Um, I think there was a cohort of people who, are, who generally worked on gender-based violence who put together a submission. And then there were feminists who worked on like um, data issues and privacy. And I was part of that group. We put a, a different submission in together. But what was interesting is how, you know, it, it seemed as if there was a little bit of gatekeeping and also kind of like a, we actually don't have time and capacity to be dealing with issues of of like data and all of that. Mm-hmm. So you guys do that, and then mm-hmm. we'll present, and then you'll present, and we'll present. Right. Um, so I think a lot of the work really is is kind of like what would be a strategy that allows for people to have resources and tools that they can then make use of, um, mm-hmm. and at the same time acknowledging that like I think that that like feminist practice of self reflection. Where, right. where is it that you get your information in order to inform the kind of work that you're doing? Mm-hmm. And then do you have a through back circle that goes back that to that community? Or are mm-hmm. you maintaining their practice of people who've done gender work where they've just extracted the numbers, gone to present to policymakers, but haven't mm-hmm. even come back to do any transformative work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting way of thinking and looking at, thinking about it and looking at it. Um, we're coming to the end of our conversation. It's been a really rich conversation. I think we've done a good job of cross, going cross country, starting with data, big data sets and getting to some activism and feminism conversations. Is there anything that you feel um, we haven't covered that you'd just like to discuss before we end our conversation? Yeah, so the one thing that I think I haven't discussed and oftentimes this is where all these data conversations end up is Mm -hmm. that a lot of the digital space allows for us to experience pleasure and have Mm -hmm. a lot of fun on the internet and make new friends. I think that, you know, like focusing on the joy aspect of of technology and what it is that you can actually do with data um, Mm -hmm. might also be like a good intervention to actually have more people in the room having these conversations. I, I spoke a lot about online gender-based violence and I find that it's natural 
sway into online gender-based violence because there isn't a lot of work being done on pleasure and how also um, algorithms can actually stifle people's ability to have fun on the internet or mm. also how, you know, like the levels of content moderation are mm. developed in a way where people have to fit a particular box. Mm-hmm. So my hope is that this podcast will actually inspire someone to think about data from a joy perspective mm-hmm. and then really think about connecting with like feminists who are always championing that like rest is resistance and mm-hmm. putting out content of joy and pleasure in a way where you're kind of like how do we game the algorithm how do we game the system when we've got so many exciting people putting out this 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 like content that brings makes people happy um but in addition to focusing on all the other problematic issues. And you're very right. I think a lot of people who are in the digital space, when we have conversations, we we tend towards the the more severe aspects of technology and how our, you know, our freedoms are being are in this battlefield. We're in this battlefield for battlefield for our freedoms. And then pleasure and joy and happiness and these kinds of things are sort of an afterthought. Um, how do you see that manifesting online? How do you see people doing that, uh, reclaiming the space and making it a pleasurable space for themselves? I'm not going to lie. TikTok has been doing something. TikTok has been revolutionizing something. Yes. Although the algorithm is very problematic because it stifles down content by, from like um, Black women or Black queer people. I do feel like that has been a space where people have been reclaiming it. Um, mm-hmm. And another thing I always have found is how like people like create their communities online. And if you let, somehow find the right person to follow, you end mm-hmm. up in that space and all you're just receiving is just like, well great information where you then say oh the other side of twitter has landed into my into my space so that's how i see it manifesting but i think there's a little bit more work that needs to be done in terms of documenting it um again by african feminists because i've seen a a work emerging from um european feminists and american feminists but really thinking about like um so if anyone is planning on doing a phd in digital humanities next year you know let's just document how african feminists manifest um joy and pleasure in online spaces mm-hmm. and maybe assess like what are the limitations to though to to how it happens um and the ways in which it happens there's this one platform that i really love called head on mm-hmm. um h-e-d-o-n-e on on i think it's oh hola and head on exactly they mm-hmm. those two platforms really right. focus on putting out like right. um sexual pleasure for queer yeah. people and for and also uh, the work that's done by nana Dakor on like yeah. uh, six lives of african women right. i think more and more of that content being in these spaces is definitely yeah. something that we need but also we know we need to dismantle a lot of social and patriarchal norms that say you can't mm-hmm have fun so so i think it's it's a and it's it's a lot of work that needs to be done and also having platforms away from the mm-hmm. mainstream like your metas and your twitters within this kind of information exists so that if right. they pull it down um or those platforms it still exists as a body of knowledge somewhere because mm-hmm. right now it's more easier to set up on instagram um on tiktok but we need we need to do more work in terms of resourcing people to be able to have their bodies of knowledge and work on platforms separate from those spaces. Mm-hmm. 
you're right, absolutely. And I think when you talked about uh, people doing more research work into, into joy and pleasure, I, I remember recently reading a paper about African aunties on TikTok. And it's just, you know, this interesting exploration of how people perform the African auntie and how they go there and, you know, all the things that come with that, you know, the, 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 the cultural issues, but then the freedoms that also allow people to engage with that. And it's so important to, to, to remind people that there's so much of interest and joy that the, 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 the internet and social media can still provide and offer us. So thank you so much for, for bringing us back to a positive place and for ending us there. Um, I'd really like to thank you so much, Chennai, for your time. Um, it's been an amazing and interesting conversation. I really found this just so engaging and I, I'm really impressed at how we managed to go cross country in such a short amount of time. <laughs> and as you say, if anyone's listening and is really thinking about this, um, it would be really great that they, they look at exploring more about how data can be this political act, how their own data, their own body of data can be this political act and can be um, a facet or an area of their feminist work. Um, I'd like you before you go to just share again any um, specific websites or platforms that um, feature your work um, and any of your projects that people might benefit from having a look at. If you can just share those URLs with us, that would be really great. Thanks so much, Mungai. It's actually been fun uh, having this conversation. So please do check out my personal website, mydatarights.africa. Um, so yeah, mydatarights.africa. And then also check out policy.org, where we've done work called Afrofeminist um, Data Futures. Then I think also just um, check out the work on ADAPT, so A-D-A-P-T, Internews where there are some resources in there that you can take about think about like data and privacy um and then also look at like organizations such as tactical tech so they actually have resources which include like a digital um detox kit which i really think is fantastic and people should download it and like detox this their like devices and stuff like that so yeah i think um that's where the, those are the ones that I can think of. But once you go into the rabbit hole of my data rights, you'll find other sites. Oh, and before I forget, my co-author for the most recent paper, The Feminist Bar. So Tinatswe Maka, that's where you find the podcast we were talking about um, our most recent, recent uh, research project. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope that you got some food for thought out of this episode. And I really look forward to having you uh, again on the podcast uh, the next time. And until then, do take care and be well. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Native Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook. Our page is the Digitally Native Podcast with Fungai Machirori. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at the same page name, the Digitally Native Podcast with Fungai Machirori. Uh, and then you can just send an email as well if you have anything you'd like to share or express. Uh, the email address is info at digitallynativepodcast.com. And like I said at the beginning, we have a newsletter you can subscribe to. And all you have to do is go onto our website, which is www.digitallynativepodcast.com and find the subscribe button. And there you can just add your details and you will then be included 
in our mailing list for our next newsletter, which drops at the end of August. Until the next episode, as I said already, please be well. See you next time.